The following program contains adult themes and may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Knock, knock, guess who is knocking at your door? That's right, you know it's the morning for sure. Might be a geoff, it could be. Maybe it's been around me. No, you love this week in moments, original morning news. If you love Lindsay Sterling, Bryce Harper in Utah, and cello salad foods, oh, you're gonna love this show. All right, folks, so here we are with a special week of This Week in Mormons where we're going to do a little interview. We're going to set the news aside that we usually talk about, and instead, we're going to talk about sex. That's right, and and I'm sure most of you are rolling your eyes saying the worst person on earth to talk about sex right now is Jeff, and you're probably right, but here we are. This is the hand we've been dealt. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this this week, though, because there's a new book called And It Was Very Good. It's essentially an LDS guide to sexuality, and I think it's really fascinating. And I have the author with me, but the author wishes to remain unknown. It's it's officially authored by Goodly Parents. Should I just call you Goodly? Can I call you Goodly as a nickname, or do you prefer something else? I think it's Earthly Parents, but Goodly Parents would be nice. I think that implies that I'm rich if I'm a Goodly Parent, or good if you think that way. I'm sorry. It's Earthly Parents. I can call you Earthly. Can I call you Earth? Earthly Parent? Anonymous? Jim? Joe? My friends call me EP. I'm going to call you Bernie Sanders. Does How does that sound? Ooh, that doesn't sound good. How about EP? EP. Okay, I can call you EP. EP works. We'll do EP. So uh, I imagine EP, why don't you want anyone to know who you are? It's not like you're an informant on a nightly news program or anything like that. So give us, give us the skinny. Well, I would be fine with it. However, I am married and my wife... Not so much. So this is a book that I wrote and my wife edited for our children, but also for the larger uh, Latter-day Saint public as as we wrote it. But one of the conditions was she didn't want people at church to be looking at her funny (laughs) and thinking that they had some kind of insight into our sex life. And so I have to remain anonymous and I'm honoring her wishes. I mean, I guess that's fair. Having read the book, I don't think there's anything that's like rocking the boat too hard there. I think the boat. I think the book is is it's clear. Uh, I think it's matter of fact. But just so you know, on my end, knowing very little about your personal life or your ward, I would read it and just assume you're a wise person who's done research and knows what you're talking about, as opposed to someone who is writing about your own. Uh, sexual preferences for all to see, uh, but for what it's worth, just so you know, if it helps your wife feel any better, but uh, she will. <laughs> okay, good. Please, please pass that along. I hope she listens to this and understands. It. All is all is well. All is well. Um, okay, so that's fine. Uh, you know, shame on the judgy people in your ward for caring, but whatever. Uh, what, what's like the background behind it? You said you wanted to write this for your children and for anybody else, but. Clearly, there's a deeper drive behind it. What is the impetus behind this? What got you going on this whole project to write a book about Mormon sex? Real sex for Mormons. You get what I mean. Well, Jeff, I thought for a long time that uh, this topic was something that was important and under underrepresented. It was hard, for example, when I was trying to find something that I thought would help my sister when she was getting married. I couldn't find a sex manual that I thought was appropriate, to be honest. Um, I ended up getting something that may have been wildly inappropriate, but uh, it was at least detailed and accurate and had the best scientific evidence behind it. And that was better than, I thought, leaving everything to chance, so to speak. I myself had read a book that my parents left on the very top shelf called Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. I read that before puberty, and I, I thought it was fantastic and really helped me to navigate something that could be a, an otherwise rather uncomfortable or confusing time of life. And I felt it helped me also um, in my own marriage. And I wanted that for my kids. In the In the process of writing the book, I also interviewed 95 members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and asked them about their wedding night in particular. And that also opened up the idea that 
wedding nights and sexuality in general can be fraught. They can be really, really painful physically, but especially emotionally. What? Yeah. You're, you're kidding. Well, we have a we have a wonderful culture and a wonderful religion that can really support a very broad, expansive, beautiful view of sexuality. But we also have a culture that leaves us at the altar, so to speak, in terms of being comfortable with sexuality. And so there are some gaps that just seem to exist. And one really obvious one, once you see it, is that we feel, or it's pretty easy to feel that to be virtuous is to be asexual, to deny our sexuality, to right. take, yeah, yeah to not rein in our sexuality so much as take our sexuality behind the barn and shoot it dead, that kind of thing. <laughs> and that's not helpful in marriage. That as soon as you're there, then it's, it's problematic. Then you find yeah. it difficult to access your sexuality at all for some or to access it for years and really claim it for others. And so that that's just one example of where we're left by our culture a little bit shy of where we want to be. And if that if that gap can be bridged with more information, then let's bridge that gap and get people into a, a really good situation. That was the idea. No, I like it. Well, why do you think I agree with you, but why do you think we get that way as Latter-day Saints? I mean... L- is it just because, like you said, we work so hard to be virtuous that we just misinterpret the notion of sexuality rather than realizing it is it is something to be nurtured and utilized? We're just so instead we sort of <laughs> pervert is a funny verb to use given this context, but but we pervert it in that sense, and we just we we try to like you said take it out in the back and shoot it and assume it is evil that sexuality is evil. And I and uh, I mean, how do we get that way? Is it just our 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 nonstop course to seek virtue? We assume that means we have to be asexual creatures, and it just screws us up later on. I don't think it would have happened, Jeff. Honestly, if we hadn't been in the United States in a certain time oh. in history, okay. The this culture that has gotten to be fairly negative about sexuality in the last um, say 120 years is really where it where it came up, and um, in particular, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a larger purity movement that if you can remember, and I, I do remember, the object lessons in church that described our purity as being something like a piece of gum and how it oh, yes, feel if you were a chewed yeah. piece of gum. Would anybody else want to chew the gum? That sort of thing. That isn't just that isn't something that we came up with. That's something that has been in the larger Christian community and was going around at the same time. And I think that in in many ways we fell prey to that at, at about the same time that there was a reaction against the sexual revolution in the seventies. Um, I'm I can't I'm not old enough to really remember the sexual revolution of the seventies. I was alive but not aware at that level. But I think that that also had something to do with it. So I think that it's not just that our religion gets us here, but our culture, specifically United States culture, got us here. I don't know that this is quite the the issue that you have in, in say, France and members of the Latter-day Saints or um, or in uh, Germany, say. Just not. Yeah, and I, was about to, and I was about to ask you that. Did any of your research uh, take you down that kind of an avenue? Did you discover any sort of a difference between North American Mormons versus elsewhere? I mean, because, you know, Europeans are famously more sexually liberated, quote unquote, right? I mean, even they, they if, if you'll forgive my digression a little bit, I like to follow the film industry. I, I have my whole life. And I've noticed uh, here in the States, you know, we have a, a pretty high tolerance, I'd say, culturally for movies with language, with a lot of violence, especially, especially in PG-13 type movies. But if there's a whiff of sexuality, we get very, very uptight about it. Whereas a lot of European and European cinema, they think the fact that we love violence so much is just strange and abhorrent. And whereas they think sexuality is something that's more normal. And I know that's not a perfect parallel, but I I am curious, did any of your research take you down that sort of path where you saw some of the differences globally as Mormons? Or was this more restricted to to North American Latter-day Saints? So most of my work was on the North American Latter-day Saints, but there were a few pieces that do come up pretty much immediately. We have had a lot of abstinence-only sex education, not comprehensive sex education in the U.S. in the last um, several decades. And 
abstinence-only sex education is one of the worst things that could happen to you as uh, as a human being in in this kind of culture because it leads to higher rates of teen pregnancy. It leads to higher rates of um, our earlier first intercourse. It leads to having more sex partners lifetime, and it's associated also with um, more sexually transmitted infections, none of which I think we'd want for our kids or that we'd want for ourselves. And the sex education is just better in general in the in the in Europe. So that's one. And then separately, I did get that also back from readers that were from the UK and Germany that um that emailed me back and um and and suggested that maybe it wasn't quite the gap over there, at least a different gap. They they still have gaps, but it's not it's not nearly the same. They have better sex education. So we have more to overcome here. And interestingly enough, if you talk to random, I don't mean random, but just any therapist, say a family therapist, not a certified sex therapist that you might go to. So let's say that you, you've decided to talk about and work out something with your sex life um, with a family therapist that maybe LDS services is suggested. The number of hours that these therapists may have been trained specifically in therapy, in sexuality rather, might be zero or something close to it. And they may also have been raised on... on um, uh, on abstinence only sex ed so it's it's shocking even the the teachers may not have taken the course so we're in a place where we're told as parents that it's our job it is our responsibility at, to be the primary source of sex education for our children and it's at a time when even though information seems to be everywhere teaching of the information is not so you can certainly go out on youtube or google and find all sorts of things about sex very few of which I think we as as parents um, would want our kids to to see or be exposed to. Some of it's complete nonsense, obviously. And so finding something that is accurate, that is in, in keeping, that we would say, with uh, gospel principles, that's what I didn't see. Accurate, detailed, and in keeping with gospel principles. That That's hard to find. That detailed part is one that is really all, also not there. And details is important. It's not sufficient often to just vaguely say some things that might be helpful. You really have to go into some of the details in part because you want to satisfy curiosity in our kids. Because if they're curious and they don't get that curiosity satisfied from us, they're going to get it satisfied somewhere else. And we might not be very happy with that. That's true. Well, that, that said, so you said, you said earlier in the interview, you know, uh, um, that you discovered the book about sex uh, on your parents' shelf before you even hit puberty, and you said it helped you. And I think a lot of people listening might think that that could be a harmful thing, right? If you're too young to discuss these sorts of things, to learn in such graphic detail about sexuality, and perhaps you are an anomaly in that sense, that it didn't pique your curiosity in the wrong way. Um, what would you say to people like that? And also, what age? What, what would you say is the cutoff age uh, for the book that you've written? going down. So I'll answer, yeah, I'll answer both of those. Like one one is if you go right now, in fact, in the last couple of days, there have been multiple releases of uh, articles and videos on the formal lds.org website. And on those uh, in those videos, one of the things that they specifically cover is are you giving too much information? Are you should you just maybe talk about the framing and not about the sexuality part and the details part. And the answer that they came up with is, is no, you should be talking about the sexuality part and have those details there. And specifically, they address people worry that if I talk about this, I'm going to encourage my kids to be experimenting or mm -hmm. be sexual before they ought to be. So that's one answer is that the church very, very recently in the in, in the past few days has come out in a fairly large way in supporting something more akin to comprehensive sex education. It's really wonderful and it's a big change. It's very much welcome. So that's one. Uh, it's there and now it's essentially officially endorsed that something like this is what you should be seeking to provide your kids. But it doesn't mean that you provide this book to your kids when they are before puberty. It's, it, it may be for some precocious ones that it would be the right thing to do. And you are the parent. I'm not your parent of your kids. So decide. Read the book and decide. And um, you can read the book for free, by the way. We'll talk about that. Um, uh, so 
decide for yourself. Is it something that's a conversation starter? Is it ha- does it have a piece that you can use? Some pieces, like the first chapter on framing from the gospel perspective on what sexuality means, uh, something that I entitled Our Families, Sexual Articles of Faith, that it, that's framing that you could even use for the right children at the right time in family home evening. Might not be the most typical family home evening, but I'm sure they'll pay attention on that one. But I'll be honest, I have kids that are in the young single adult range, um, some that I would expect will get married soon. I think it's fantastic for them. I think it's great for some of our um, later teen children that we have. Um, But my wife's idea of what the proper age to read this book is, is six hours before the wedding. So reasonable people can disagree. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, I, I wonder about this whole idea because I, do you think we undersell how how much younger tweens perhaps already know and how much we should get ahead of it? And I like that you said, of course, it's up to parents. You know, it's kind of a novel concept, right? I think as Latter Day Saints, sometimes we want the church to do so much for us, and a lot of the big changes we've had this year in particular, you know, with uh, home centered church-supported church, for example, puts more of the onus on parents to take the reins in raising their children and teaching them appropriate things, which is great. Um, but for example, like I was in a ward once and we were, they, they pulled the youth on things they wanted to talk about during a bishop's youth discussion. And a lot of them said they wanted to talk about navigating LGBT issues, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this was great. We thought if they want to talk about this and know how to how we deal with it as a church, what, what they should do if they experience those feelings themselves uh, and how to go about it, um, it seemed like a good idea. But then our bishop sort of put the kibosh down because he thought it was just too complex, too adult for the teenagers to be getting into. And I disagreed, but that wasn't whatever. That, that was, you know, I said my piece and that was that. Um, and I see a lot of parallels in the same vein. Of course, we have to know our audience exactly, but I, I wonder if we don't undersell how much young teenagers or early teens uh, think they know at least and how much healthier it would be for us to get out in front of it and just be frank with them about things rather than wait for society, you know, evil, the world to fill in the gaps. Yeah, and we're worse off than we would ever have been in the past because we think about what we might have been ready for or have known from our own lives, and it, it ain't that world anymore. They do know much, much more. They've seen probably everything already. It doesn't take uh, very much. I, I'm, not, um, I'm not an expert researcher in the earlier childhood development, but I understand that it's, yeah. it's quite young, that people are usually first uh, exposed to pornography, like in, I, I want to say in like eight to 10 range, something in that, in that range. So imagine that they're going to be getting that. And if you haven't given them the wise pathfinding that you as a parent, or that we as parents can provide, then they're just lost. They're, or they can be just lost in, in something that's confusing and um, it puts them at risk, to be honest. Yeah. And I can speak to that. I mean, bring now that I'm reflecting on this, and I think I saw pornography probably for the first time when I was somewhere like nine or 10. I have one memory actually of a kid who was clearly not my good, not a friend for me to have, had like a dirty magazine or something and wanted us to see it. And I was so young. I saw some these images and this and that. And it was, it's confusing and it doesn't, you know, and it, it gives you this whole skewed view. And I wasn't coming at it like I'd had any, any thoughtful talks with my parents about such things in a productive way or anything like that. Um, and that stuff can can mess you up as a kid, and at least it's hopefully taught me as an adult, you know, how to be smarter about those sorts of things and uh, and be more proactive with with helping our kids out. And you, of course, like you said, you've got kids in all sorts of age ranges. I'm sure you've navigated that uh, with them already. Um, but one thing I want to talk about, you said, you know, you're not a researcher, so you are not a therapist of any variety professionally. Is that correct? No, I, I'm a father. <laughs> I'm a father of <laughs> seven. A, enough said. Mic drop. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. So my my work, my professional work, does allow me to do research. 
Like I can read a lot of scientific papers without any particular problem uh, or medical ones. Um, but I'm not. I'm not a therapist. I am not an okay. expert in this field. I'm a person who learns how to read a lot and uh, and learn from it and um, do a survey and learn from it. So that those are the inputs that I had. But I didn't stop there. I did go because I I didn't want to get anything really terribly wrong. Like this is a big responsibility for my own kids, of course, but for anybody reading it. And so I, um, I, I reached out to three different, um, sex therapists that are prominent in, um, Latter-day Saint, um, sex therapy. Um, Natasha Helfer Parker, who was fantastic, really helped kind of go through page by page with the book right. uh, before yeah, it was too. published. Uh, same thing from, um, Ramel McElprang, um, who's another one of those, though he's not, um, as, um, as prominent now in podcasts in the same way that Natasha is. And, um, and Jennifer Finlayson Fife, who is, um, these are all people that, that, uh, work prominently in, in the field to get their feedback because I was, as you might expect, concerned that I might get something wrong and really leave people hurt, which that's, that, that isn't the point. I mean, I, if I can help one person, just one person say, have, um, say a woman that might have orgasm when she wouldn't have for 10 or 15 years, then it's all worth it. If I could help one, one brother have at least some idea of how to have a non-traumatic sexual experience with his wife on a wedding night so that they aren't then crying and thinking the honeymoon is terrible and maybe they aren't even really uh, shouldn't even be married. Well, then that's worth it. That's all it takes. Just one, because those experiences are so very traumatic for people. And as I heard from surveys, it, it's pretty common to have really traumatic sex. And that's it's something that's solvable. It's so solvable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reflecting on my life. Yes, it's it's a it's it can be a mess. It's fun. Um <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so how long did you work on this then? I mean, given it seems like you sort of you had an idea but you kind of started from from little and you worked your way up. So I mean, how how, how deep does this project go in terms of time yeah. and scope? So a, a hockey stick doesn't even um uh, even give you the idea of how bad it was. About 10 years ago, I thought, you know what, I should really do this. My kids, you know, at this time, my oldest one was maybe 16. And I was like, hmm, I should probably do this and make it a little bit easier for him um, and then for the others. And so I sat down and I wrote one sentence and then I chickened out for nine years. And then... <laughs> Last year, I saw, and I don't know if you've seen it, um, there's a Mr. Rogers, um, Fred Rogers uh, movie, a documentary oh, you, about him. I, you mean the one that was that was not even nominated for the Academy Award for Best Documentary, and that was a shame and a, a it was. scandal. It, yes. It, it was just so wonderful. And yes, it was. there's a part in the film where he talks about playing the piano and how you can move from the key of C to the key of F. And it's really simple. You can just change chords and from C to F, it's no big deal. But there are some key changes that are difficult, that are hard transitions. And yes, say true. from C to F sharp, that kind of tritone sound that sounds kind of nasty unless you're playing rock, um, that, that movement is hard. You have to kind of move from key to key to key to key to get to key of F sharp from C. And he considered, he said, his life to be the person who made some transitions easier. And I came out of that movie thinking, I know a transition that's hard. I know a transition that's really hard for a lot of my brothers and sisters and might be hard for my kids. And I got to tell you, Jeff, I just felt as though this was something that I should do, not just that I wanted to do or that I might be able to do, but that I ought to do. And I did, I did a little bit of looking around just to be sure that there wasn't something that was quite like it already out there. I, I didn't see it. And so, um, and if I missed it, I'm sorry, <laughs> other, other, uh, Latter-day Saint authors. Um, but I felt that it was, it, it was a task that I could take and I ought to just take it. And we've had the whole be the light, um, admonitions for the last couple of years and okay, I'll go do it. I can do that. Yeah, and I I will back that up uh, for the folks listening. I think there's not as much like this. Uh, any of us who have perused the you know marital help sections or prep sections that you know your at your local Deseret Book or what have you, uh, there's some famous books within those <laughs> among those ranks. 
and I don't think they treat it this way. Um, you know, I, I've, I've thumbed through those. Uh, as a time in my life, I worked at a Deseret Book after my mission when I was in college, and it was awesome. So anyways, I wandered over there and read around, and it was fine, but it, I, what I liked about your book is it felt, I don't want to say clinical, because it wasn't like it was cold, but it was matter-of-fact and it was frank about things. And many could read that and assume that it's, you know, it's trying to break taboo or what have you. But it's a problem as Latter-day Saints that we think those things are taboo. That we think you talking about the words ejaculation and, and any other number of just what are medical terms for physiological reactions to stimuli are dirty things that we shouldn't be saying, right? And how dare we read such things? They'll fill our minds with with trash and filth. And that's not the case at all. I mean, yeah, I read this, and especially I liked reading it after having been married for a number of years because, yeah, it makes way more sense, and it's the kind of thing that would be unbelievably beneficial to read prior to uh, jumping into bed, as it were, in my opinion. I, I sure hope so. This, I mean, our bodies, we uh, of any religion believe our bodies are godly. They are patterned after our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mo- Mother. And I assume that means sexuality in all its forms also. And that's what we are. We are sexual beings. We have been sexual beings from, in our theology, from before we were born. And we've been sexual beings our whole life, of course. Yeah. And it's time to claim our birthright, to be honest. Why, why would we let anything be held hostage from pornography or from somebody who wants to keep from us what should be our birthright from God himself. That's it's, it's there for our, our use, not just for procreation, but for our, our pleasure, our joy, our bonding. It's for us. Did you do any research? Uh, you just mentioned procreation. Did any of your research specifically ask people if they had worked under the assumption that sex should be primarily for procreation? Like, did you get any data on that in particular? I'm just curious. I didn't have that, but it was pretty easy to find. Um, yeah. the, 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 there have been multiple prophets that have said, um, Spencer Kimball, for example, uh, have said that there's nothing that says that it's for procreation only. You go to the, yeah. the, um, you go to the priesthood manuals now and it, it states that pretty clearly there's nothing there. It's for bonding also. So that one was one where our, doctrine actually includes that that's not a that's not an issue that we as even a society should be overcoming because it's right there we're told it over and over again and we're also kind of commanded to do it it's not as though we're we're not we're not just thinking that this is something that you do because you have no other choice we're told to do it this is not just uh, thou maybe might but a thou shalt Yeah, that's true. I, I, you mentioned Ki- President Kimball, and I remember something I thought might be apocryphal or along those lines, but I seem to recall him being the one who specified very clearly that it is not just for kids and you n- need to you know, rethink it if that's what you have been thinking. Now, I, yeah. I think a lot of the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's uh, he, he did. Hubie Brown did. Other, others have, though, too. It's, it, it's really not been a controversial statement from no. prophets and, and modern prophets, to be honest. It's, it is right there. We are, we are to do it also for joy. So one great, one big theme, I think, in the book, just that I got from reading it, and a lot of this could seem like common sense, but I think books have to be written because we lack common sense sometimes. Um, in general, it's sort of, I think it sort of embraces this, this idea of try to be open-minded and accommodating in the bedroom. You know, think about what you want, what your spouse wants, talk about things, express what you want, be willing to stretch yourself a little bit, uh, for example. Um, and of course, be respectful, make sure everyone is on board with stuff. And I think you're pretty open-minded in that capacity saying like, look, this is your bedroom life. Like, I'm not going to tell you that a certain practice is wrong or not or what have you. It is between you and your spouse. And I believe that is the norm. Now, I've only ever heard this and never really seen stuff to back it up, and I'm curious if your research uh, can verify any of it. But I've always been led to believe the church, once upon a time, did have rules about things that were verboten uh, in the bedroom. Sure, you can get married and have sex and, and, and have that part of your life and experience those things, but certain acts, etc., were still not to be engaged in. And I've heard that in my, in my life, but I've never verified it. Are you able to shed any light on that? My understanding is there are a couple that 
at different times were either um, expressly forbidden or were suggested against. And that's kind of gone up and down. There's uh, even if you go back to like, I think it's the 1920s. um, I want to say it was the head of Relief Society had an article out saying that someone who shamed their child for masturbating should be told that that's that's backwards. So that's that's an example kind of to the counter side of saying that masturbation was okay, at least implied that was okay, that you shouldn't be shaming your your uh, daughter for doing so in this case. Um, Interesting. And then, uh, yeah. And then, uh, hang on one second. I hope you can cut that out. My apologies. Sorry, I had an incoming call. Um, and then... So that's on one side of it. And on the other side, what you probably have heard, and I did hear it also, and I was able to verify this um, just by doing some some quick research on this, that for about a six-month period in 1982, there was a letter that came out from the first presidency suggesting that in Temple recommend interviews that if that the practice of oral sex was considered uh, impure, um, unnatural, and um, would be disqualifying for um, for going to the temple. And then within six months, another letter came out from the first presidency saying, um, "Don't ask. Um, you shouldn't. You shouldn't go into the the details of a married couple's sex life." And that's been where we have essentially been since that point. One of the ways that I, as a as a member of the church, and what I tell my kids about something like this, is that. It's it's easy to imagine that someone might, if they pray about it or have their own strong beliefs in their own marriage, that a particular act might not be a good idea for them. That it might not. And when you get that confirmation from the Spirit, like, don't do this thing, it's pretty easy to imagine you'd think everybody might be doing so. I don't know that that's what happened. But that's one way to consider it that might be less antagonistic towards the idea that um, somebody just got it wrong. Uh, Maybe it was right for them. I don't know. But um, right now, the direction is pray about it. And probably the other thing that you'll hear if you ask about specific acts, you'll probably hear two things, one of two things from uh, bishops, maybe three. One is that one where they still believe that it might be... um, disallowed and just don't know. And that's not what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to be asking those things. They're just supposed to be asking you if you follow the, the law of chastity um, and, and not probe on specific details or something like that. Um, so pray about it and you're fine is my what I tell my kids. Um, you might get ones that say, not in the manual, have a good day, which seems appropriate to me but again i'm not I, I that's that's what i would tell my kids to do if if they had um questions like that um and then you'll probably get a, a third group after those two where they they themselves worry that maybe it's not right and so they don't know what to say and that that does happen i i, I think I, I know that because i've gotten <laughs> I've gotten emails from um, from people that have um, gotten the free PDF of the book. I'll, I'll just mention that here right now, by the way. If you want a free PDF of this book, you don't have to buy the whole book. You don't have to go and buy the, the print copy or listen to the audio book. You can just email me at earthlyparents at gmail.com, and I'll send you a copy. I'll just send you a PDF. I want it read. I think it helps, and I hope it helps more. But some of the people that have read that then were either bishops or married to bishops. <laughs> and they emailed me back and said, isn't this not allowed? And I'm like, well, here's what happened. Uh, have you checked the manual recently? And yeah, then they either don't um, email me back or um, or do and say, I'll, I'll look into this. <laughs> so that, that's, what how, I, how that's what I'm hearing. Well, not not so much, I don't think. I, 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 would, I, would, I, I would hate to think that I'm um, truly making a person um, really worried that they're doing the right thing. Um, but I, I can just say, again, my, my authority is over my kids. I can tell my kids, everything I see in the priesthood manual says that they're not supposed to ask and that it's between you and the Lord. So be a wise, a, a wise uh, servant and 
Go and find out. Don't be slothful on this. This is your body. This is your marriage. You need to go to the Lord. Don't rely on other people. And and there you also get, and this is a direction that's in there, so it's something to be aware of, and it's something that I do talk to my kids about, is that you will find that you'll get the response back, and I think it's a, a stated response back, of saying, well, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, maybe you ought not to do it. That's good advice for some things, but for sexuality is actually a little bit tricky. And here's why. Whenever we do something new, we really haven't learned it. Think riding a bike, playing the piano, um, going out and, and dancing, a dance step we've never learned, and certainly sexuality. It's uncomfortable. We feel awkward. We feel confused. We feel like maybe we don't really want to do this. And if that's the feeling we're relying on to say that's the spirit telling us no, then we're not going to do any new thing. We're not going to learn new things. We're going to mistake the feeling of learning for the feeling of the spirit telling us no. So there I'd exercise some caution, or at least tell my kids, exercise some caution. You can pray about it, but you might not get an answer that makes you feel all that comfortable until you try something two, three, or four, or five times. Uh, it's It probably sounded weird and icky to you when you were seven years old and you heard about kissing or French kissing or anything that somebody does sexually, but then later you tried it and you liked it. So that's a lot of things sexually are like that. It's like Daniel Tiger says, you got to try new things because they might, well, in his case, it's for food because they might taste good. Daniel Tiger is teaching our kids that when they're three years old, everybody, Daniel Tiger. So just carry that over into your sex life and you'll be fine. In, indeed. And it's not like we're bringing a third party into bed or something that is so obviously sinful and breaks the law of chastity. If at worst, we're doing something that we can repent from and maybe we don't like it. But we are asked to be, you know, like little children in certain ways. And what do children do? They ask a lot of why. They ask a lot of why and they try to learn new things. They're learning machines. That's interesting. Uh, when you were doing your research, um, the book covers a, a few areas that I, I enjoyed kind of the first half. It talks a lot about essentially how to stimulate and please your spouse, which is very yes. frankly, which is, I think is super useful. And so uh, of course it, it talks about how women are complex creatures. I, I love the, the physiological detail you went into on this on the way on, uh, women's sexual response and how this works. And of course, cause as men, we are programmed very differently. You know, there's a there's a stiff breeze and we're ready to go. Not to be too crude, but you know how it is. It's a lot different for us. You even said in the book, essentially, men can, if I can be so bold. Uh, I like that I'm paraphrasing a bit, but then it's you said basically a man can rub his penis uh, even like on a woman's armpit and that'll do it for him to, to be pleased. Um, and I thought that, and I'm not making light of it, but I thought that was, that was, it was funny to me because in many ways it's true. And that women are so much more complicated. Um, so I want to ask you this though, based on your research, do you see that these aren't, these are apples and oranges, but do you feel that, that women, perhaps there are many women, especially who feel guilt going into their wedding nights, right? You know, all, even though it's totally, or, you know, you feel like suddenly you're dirty, you broke the rules, whatever it might be. Women can be uptight and, and have a lot of guilt. Uh, we talked a lot about, you talk a lot about that and men don't quite know, how to please the lady and haven't done any research. Of those two, which do you think is the most prevalent or problematic going into a new sexual relationship? I don't know which one's more prevalent. I think that the problematic one is is the the one where the man doesn't really know what to do at all. And that that's problematic because the woman also may not know what to do in our culture. The number of men that have masturbated before marriage is very high, like 94%, something like that. The number of women um, is more around 78% and probably lower within our culture, though I've never seen a really good uh, prevalence number for that. And so the chance that a woman knows in our culture on the wedding night how to have a pleasurable sexual experience for her is quite low. But for a man, it's quite high. And then at the same time, we go into a honeymoon night, a wedding night, essentially doing exactly what the man might want. 
and what he's ready for, especially if he has has um, has masturbated before, then he he knows what what works for him. He's ready for the next step. And the next step for a man is likely going to be intercourse. And that's just wrong, wrong, wrong for a woman who may not even know how to feel pleasure, may not know her own anatomy at all, which is something that I certainly heard within um, the the in a, the uh, surveys that I oh I, yeah uh, there, that I you, got you have back. Some, you have some poll quotes that are just amazing, like jaw dropping from women saying like how little they knew about themselves. But yeah, continue. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and um, so if they don't know those things, and then we get into intercourse, which I think that even. I, I would say that even I, as a, a before I had done this last round of research, didn't really appreciate how much that intercourse is a male-centric mode of sexuality, where if the expectation is that it's going to be pleasurable with intercourse uh, to the point of orgasm with a woman, it, uh, it, it's it's just relatively rare. Maybe one out of six women, once they really know what they're doing, one out of six have just the right anatomy, so it works. They have a short distance between the clitoris and the urethra. And if you have a short enough distance there, then uh, your physiology is set up or your home hormones are set up enough so that it's relatively easy. But the other five, six, no, they, they, don't, they may not feel much. If you feel the inside of your, inside of your cheek, it, uh, that's about the same kind of skin as a, uh, as a vagina. And it also feels about as much as a vagina might feel. A vagina itself doesn't feel very much. It what gets felt is when everything is kind of puffy and vaso uh, vas- vasodilated. There's like a lot of blood there, and the clitoris gets engaged um, because the clitoris itself is quite large, much larger than most people expect. It's about the size of a penis, but it's all internal, um, and or at least most of it's internal. Only that little tip um, pokes out, but once that's got to kind of like all turn into like this Voltron of blood and locking all together before it even to really have vaginal simulation do much. And there's a really good reason for that. If there's a very dangerous thing that might happen to all the pleasure nerves that exist for a woman, and that very dangerous thing is giving birth. And yeah. those pleasure nerves are routed away from that birth canal. They're, they're you know, it's a, it's a bypass around it, basically. So if you are the, yes, there are some women that can have um, orgasm through intercourse alone, and but the maybe half never, ever have orgasm during intercourse, half. And then the other 25% uh, on each side of those, uh, the, 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 other, the other two have uh, so 25%, 25% about every time, but they usually, they like uh, additional stimulation or find it easier. And then 25% of the time, uh, 25% of women, some of the time. And that idea of additional stimulation is also really important because if you don't know that, then you you are giving a woman something that might feel like sex without a penis, which is what it would feel like to us. That it's possible, but it probably isn't very fun. And that's what it's like uh, having um, uh, uh, sexual encounters for most women without clitoral stimulation. It's like sex for a man without a penis. And if you don't know that, then well, you're just in the wrong spot. You're not you're not doing something that might be pleasurable. I mean, I, I got an email yesterday from a, a wife who's uh, asked for the book and said for two years she isn't getting her needs met and um, been married for two years. And another person that I've interacted with, 16 years. I mean, this is just, that's hard. Uh, and it's, it's, it's quite solvable. But that's, that's where I see the biggest, the biggest uh, hurdle. That, but that isn't everybody, obviously. Because people do read. And people do learn about this sometimes. So, of course, they get there. Um, some, some, you know, many, many do. And they maybe think that this is no big deal. It's, uh, you, you, the, there's like a saying that goes around the, the community. If, if your sex life is good, it's maybe 10% of your, your focus in your marriage. And if it's bad, it's like 90% of the focus in your marriage. And it might, right, might, uh, might even make the marriage go into the rocks. So really getting, getting that right is, is really helpful the other one that you had mentioned was this feeling that maybe it's not uh, you sh- you can't be sexual. I think that is really common, but people just by experience tend to get over that. I I, I just don't. It, it doesn't seem to be quite the barrier long term, but for some it is. For some it certainly is, and um, we we put that on women in part 
I think, through things like Modesty Night and implying that through a lot of the things that we do as a culture imply that the male sexuality is guaranteed and dangerous and un- unregulated. And you women regulate the male sexuality, which is an awful lot of responsibility. It you really are is. becoming pornography, lest we forget that quote. Yes. Yeah, and it's and it's it, it's that's that's a, so much responsibility. How could you possibly address that without becoming asexual yourself? I mean, that's you, you're 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 boxing. We are boxing our daughters in a place where sexuality they they can't even afford it for themselves. They're worried about someone else's and not just even themselves. And that that has these consequences of their finding it difficult then to be um, sexual and and fully sexual in marriage. And um, also they're at risk for, um, it seems, for um, for sexual assault, because if it happens, wasn't it their fault? You know, you can think that if you're Elizabeth Smart was an example of somebody who felt that it was her fault that she was raped in, in part. And um, as an example, and um, it, it, it's it's just so much pressure it may also and does also at times have women look for somebody who feels very safe, not so handsy, somebody who makes them feel comfortable and not really sexual. And then when they find themselves in marriage, there's no spark there. And that's, that's tough. That's not a situation I want for my kids. And it's not in the book, but it's something that I've been thinking about actually since writing the book, is what do I tell my kids about what use their sexuality is now? I, not in the future. We all know that it has a purpose in the future. What's the use right now? And a couple of things come to mind. It's it's there to make you really attracted to the opposite sex, so that you're forced out of your shell. You're forced to go there. You're you're if you are a wallflower, and I got a lot of wallflowers for kids. Um, then you you're you can't be that. Your sexuality forces you out, and that's great. That's a really important purpose. And another one is to crack the box of seeing what your sexuality likes so that you know whether or not the magnets even align. If you don't have that and don't do those things, then you aren't really going to be using your sexuality wisely. And it's hard to use our sexuality wisely if it's something that we just deny. And wow, I mean, that's that's scary to think of somebody using their sexuality when there are kids in any way, shape, or form. It's, it feels probably more comfortable to tell them to deny their sexuality. But that's, that's like building a very tall wall when everybody's undermining it or just jumping over the outside and drones are coming in. It just, it makes no sense, not in this world. Hmm. I'm thinking about the wall analogy and wondering what would be... <laughs> What would be more appropriate, though? And it's so true. I mean, so would you feel like those things we just talked about, like, are those the biggest issues maybe for men? If I did ask you, what's the biggest issue for men and women as Latter-day Saints going into becoming sexually active? Do you think we kind of hit it on it right there? Or is there anything else you'd want to get want to mention? Those are big ones. I mean, there are certain gaps that we all seem to, or at least many of us seem to have. That, and those are those are some big ones because... The male sexuality is fairly advanced by the time they get into marriage because people have masturbated if they're males, usually, um, and they are ready for the next step. And females, not so much. And when you and, and there's the information, um, the kind of lack of information, because females may not know their own body. Men may not know the female body, and they may not know what to do. If you don't know that you need to give non-genital stimulation for about 20 minutes to a woman before she's even really ready to have her genitals touched— well, you're going to do something that's a little painful. And if you think that you, that say something like vaginal wetness is a sign that it's time to, to go straight to intercourse, then you're going to do something that's not fun. There, you need to know that it takes another 20 minutes, say, of uh, direct genital stimulation, ideally on the clitoris, for that to be possible. Like these things, just these, these things are the owner's manual. And the, the reason also that it's more challenging to think from the woman's side is not just ex- this experience imbalance, but also because it's it's more physiologically difficult. It's just more physiologically difficult to for a woman to get to the point that she can experience an orgasm. So there's it's it's more practice for men. It's generally automatic 
pretty easy. And you mentioned earlier about it kind of being you you could um, you could rub anywhere against a wife and and have something that might be a pleasurable sexual experience. Indeed, one that ends in orgasm for a man. That's that's you know that's pretty accurate. Um, but not so much for women. The the physiology is more challenging, and the mental state that's required may feel very alien. That getting a the sexuality that's required and the embrace of sexuality that's required for a female is, is it, it, there's got to be a lot there. You may have to have a pretty um, intense uh, fantasy or sexual scene that you really focus on uh, or romantic ideas that you're really thinking very hard about if you're a woman to be able to get yourself to a position. Uh, well, I mean, right. You got If you don't do those things, then um, then orgasm may never happen. Um, and you may never experience it. And so you have to be willing to embrace and accept those those feelings. And that's not something that we're taught. Uh, and it has to be learned. That's the other thing, is that while it's pretty automatic for a man, it's not automatic necessarily at all for women. It's a learned experience. It's like learning to whistle. Once you know the knack of your own body to whistle, you whistle. But if you don't know that knack, you've got to learn it. And that's not something that most people are culturally ready for. They think it's all natural. It'll happen naturally. That's like wanting to dance the salsa and whistle naturally when you've never done either. It just doesn't work that way. That's true. <clears throat> uh, I don't know why this popped in my head, but I'm. this is just curious for your hot take. All right. If you have a sexual dream about someone other than your spouse... Should you feel guilty about it? A, should you even tell your spouse about it? B, or should mm. you not care? So here I, I, would, I would be talking to a spouse first and seeing and trying to understand what is acceptable or wanted in those situations and praying about it. This is not something where there's a clear-cut answer. I think that the answer that most sex researchers and experts in the field give is, don't worry about it. It's just whatever you think about, and it's not a big deal. Especially a dream where you have no control over that. That's just something that happens. That's that's not nothing that uh, is is even conscious. But they would extend past that and do extend past that into saying your fantasies are your own, and the most common fantasies are fantasies about um, having sex with somebody who's not your spouse. So that's at least something that's really common. Does really common mean okay? Uh, that that's between you. And God, and that's what I would tell my kids. Like, th this is something that you really do want to work out. It's not an obvious answer, especially because it can feel disloyal or it could feel quite hurtful and threatening to a spouse. That feeling of hurtful and threatening, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty common. You feel uh, jealous. You don't want someone else to have the attention of a spouse. So that's one reason you might wa not want to do it. On the other hand, what if that's required for your sexuality to engage and so that you are able to be sexual with your spouse and yeah. share your sexuality yeah. with the spouse? And, and isn't that a good thing? And it is a good thing. That's that's So you bring up a good point, though. If that is what somebody needs to engage in sexuality, though, but are you not, especially if it's not a dream, if you're you know thinking about things actively in order to be sexual with your spouse, I mean, are you committing adultery in your heart in order to be sexual with your spouse in that case? I'm going to take a quick diversion to the adultery in your heart. I think that comes from a very particular um, verse where that word, that kind of lust after someone in your heart is the same as possess or I, I don't, uh, the, the same as you shouldn't covet other things. Yeah. So covet thy neighbor's wife is like coveting their, their ox or their, um, or, or their, their goods. So there's, there's a little bit of that that might be in there. It may not, in fact, refer to sexual thoughts about others. I don't know. But just I'm, I'm putting that out there so that there's not a very strong scriptural reference against that. I, I'll be honest. I, I think that it would be disloyal to my wife. So I try not to do such a thing. But there are but I don't know that I'm not just like adding a rule like I shouldn't eat chocolate because I shouldn't drink tea and therefore I shouldn't have any caffeine. I mean, that's it may, maybe it's one of those. And I, and I don't really know the answer, Jeff, on something like that. So that's one where it would be probably wise to start praying about something like that and seeing what God actually thinks because why be hurtful? And it's not like it should be a mystery about whether or not we're doing something right or wrong. We 
God says, ask. So ask and see if you can find an answer for something like that. I'm kind of curious of what the answer might be. I can think of other ones where the fantasies that some women need, I'm I'm saying women in this case because women and fantasies and orgasm are things that kind of go together. those, Those tend to be required as opposed to a man who may not need that and can more easily be in the moment. Not always, but uh, it, that, that's something that can be, um, that can be enough um, more often for men. But for a woman, the, the, the fantasies that they need might sometimes be pretty disturbing. And it's nothing that they've chosen necessarily. It's just what their sexuality, which gets laid down very early, your erotic template of what is interesting erotically to you is something that's laid down, you know, before, well before puberty, quite, quite young. And part of the work that, say, a sex therapist might do with someone who's disturbed by a fantasy, say, of compelled sex or something like that, might be to work backwards and say, well, what is it that makes you feel this way? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's you were once um, uh, in a place where you were you felt so wrong about being sexual and you were told it was so bad that you can't allow yourself to feel sexual unless you're forced to feel sexual. And so this is a pretty common uh, fantasy scene that that women have, that especially ones that are raised by more of a, um, a repressed or you kind of work backwards. There's some kind of repression involved with this where they want to be sexual, but they don't know how. And they can't accept in themselves that it's not just a bad thing to do. And so a fantasy of being forced, say, um, a police officer has has uh, caught you and you, you have to perform sexually to get out of a ticket or something like that or something even uh, a little bit more disturbing. Um, th- those things can have a real value to someone who otherwise can't access their sexuality. And if those fantasies are just too disturbing then you can work with a sex therapist to try to figure out how to find something that gets you what you need, like understanding the cause, what's the underlying thing that's making you feel this way, which can kind of sap the, the fantasy of its disturbing nature, and then, then move on to something that might be more acceptable to you. But if it doesn't disturb you, then we're here to share our sexuality with our spouse. It doesn't have to be in our mind anything like what we're currently doing, if that's what we... That's what we want. I'll be honest though, Jeff. I, I feel wonderful when I'm integrating my, my inner mind and innermost thoughts with what I'm doing at the moment. And it makes me feel like I'm a, a, an integrated person, not a different person kind of behind closed doors or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. And I don't know that's the answer for everybody. And I, I, I don't think I have quite the same. I mean, I know I, I don't have a, I don't have a history of sexual abuse that might in some way have, um, changed what uh, my erotic template particularly in, in a way that I find disturbing I don't have um, I don't have fairly unusual sexual thoughts that are required to be able to to access my uh, eroticism so it's not it's not something that I have to deal with and I, I have just uh, just a great deal of compassion for people that that like something else something that might feel unusual or even wrong but that's what your sexuality wants learn that gift. It, it was given to you. Learn what it is. Learn what it likes. Give it what it wants, as long as it's not, you know, involving a third person. Um, and and pray about it if, it if it really bothers you. Maybe go to a sex therapist and see if you can work your way through to something that's a little bit more acceptable. But in general, these things are, it's it's how it is. It's what's intended in, in many ways is, is to find the thing that, that works for you and engage that and share that share that uh, you may not have to share your innermost, innermost thoughts, but to share the sexual experience with your husband or with your, with your wife, that, that is what we are, that's what we ought to do. That's what we're told to do. That's our, that's our goal. That's the gift yeah. that we have. It's what we're commanded to do. <laughs> um, we are. Um, all right. Just parting thoughts. We've, we've talked about a lot of good stuff today. Uh, is there anything else that you think is worth expressing that we haven't hit on that you think uh, that is pertinent to one gender or the other, to couples in, together? Anything that we haven't hit on that you want to get out? So there are a couple things that are really useful to know. And the most common sexual ailments that people complain about when they go to see a therapist, finally, um, if they if they really are worried, are premature ejaculation for men and lack of orgasm for women. Those are number one, number one. And those two things are so 
easily fixed. They are almost guaranteed to be fixed by some behavioral therapy. It's the thing that bothers us the most, but is so fixable. And I'll get very quickly what those two things are. For men that have premature ejaculation, first of all, if it doesn't happen within one minute, it's not premature ejaculation. If it happens in a minute and a half or two minutes, there's a name for that. It's called normal. You are normal. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't have to go get treatment for anything. You, know, you may like to extend the amount of time that you have sex, but it's normal, totally normal. But if it is really fast, say seconds, um, and you just can't control it, there are very easy techniques. One's called start-stop, one's called squeeze, where you, where you have a little bit of sex or a little bit of stimulation and then stop. And eventually you learn by starting and stopping how to control your own sense of inevitability. And then it doesn't control you and your anxiety goes down and it becomes easier. And this, this takes months of work and it's easier when you work with a sex therapist to, to do it, but it's doable and it's very high success rates. And then for women, if you haven't been able to learn the trick of your orgasm, it is learnable. It is a learnable thing that the share of women who, when they go with a therapist to have directed self-stimulation, this is something that might feel taboo, but you are going to be blessing your marriage if you are um, if you do it, uh, where you are directed to touch yourself first non-genitally and see whether what feels good to you, and then later genitally to see what feels good for you there, and then ideally use a vibrator because a vibrator, those things work. So you use that for an hour. Um, and that's what you will likely be recommended if you go to see a sex therapist. And the success rate for that from no orgasm to orgasm, say in a month, is about 95%. It just works. Unless you have something medically wrong with you or something much more serious wrong with your, your psyche. So the things that oh, wow. hurt us the most and the meanings that we have and attribute to these things and feel so terrible about and worry that we've maybe married the wrong person. How did I do this? What a mistake I made. All of those things. That I'm broken? You're not broken. It just, these things are so simple to cure. So simple. And just get the help you need. And you can read about them in the book. See if they work for you. Because I'll, I described them. It's not that hard. It's You're going to be told what to do at home and you could do it. Um, but if that doesn't work, or if you just want to go and get some professional help, cause you, you may feel like you need a little bit more permission than you get from reading a book about something, then go talk to a professional and, and they'll help you. They will help you. This is, it, it, it's solvable. And, uh, a lot's like that. Yeah. It's solvable people. Um, anyway, you've hit everything on the head. I thought this was a great open-minded book. I think the, it helps you realize that sexuality is something to be embraced, to be cherished and to be explored and to not feel guilt from said exploration and work with your spouse on that sort of thing. Um, EP, as we've chosen to call you, I really appreciate you taking some time to uh, talk with me today about all this. It's been very uh, enlightening and educational. Thanks, Jeff. Do you mind if I give away where people can get the book one more time? I was about to do the plug myself, but you're going to do it better than me. So yeah, go ahead, hit it. If you want the book, I'll tell you how to get it for free in a second. But if you just like to have physical copies of the book, you can get it from Amazon or much cheaper from Barnes & Noble. Or you can go to Audible and listen to a downloaded copy if that's what you that's what you prefer to listen to an audiobook. Oh, do but you, you do, want it free? Do you, narrate, do you narrate the audiobook? Is it you? I do narrate the audiobook. Oh, yes. Excellent. Well, good. <laughs> Hopefully you like my voice. Uh, if you don't like my voice, don't get the audiobook. Um but if you do, uh, you'll hear uh, three hours of me. Um, the book itself, um, if you want, if you want a free copy by PDF, a, a, an electronic copy that you can share with anyone, and please share, just email me at earthlyparents at gmail .com, and I will send it to you. And he's he's true to his word, folks. He sent me a PDF. And that's how I read it. Well, I converted it to Kindle format, and then it got all messed up in formatting. But I still got the gist. I read the whole thing. It worked. It just messed up the formatting, but it was fine. Um, yeah, it's a good read, everybody. And it's a free PDF if you want to read this. And like he said, um, yeah, you, you have a three-hour audiobook. It depends on your reading speed. But the whole book is about, what, 170 pages or so on the PDF, I think, roughly. 
so it is not something that's going to take you forever to get through, and it's you get a lot per page of useful information, so I think it's well worth your time. Uh, so once again, EP, thanks a lot for your time, buddy. I appreciate you talking to us. Thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure, and good luck. Well, that was very educational, and truly the book is worth your while. I hope it was good for all of you. It was good for me. Um, please visit us at thisweekinmormons.com. Shoot us an email, contact at thisweekinmormons.com, and follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc. That would be good. Uh, my two big pleas this week, if you've not written a review on iTunes, please go to iTunes and write said review. Give us five stars. Hook us up. That would be so cool. I know how many are there right now. I want to see at least 10 more reviews up there from this episode. If you haven't done it, now is the time. Please, 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 please. And also, please, 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 uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash This Week in Mormons, you can pledge like a buck a month, something along those lines. And all that does is just helps us pay our bills. Truly, that's what it is. It is not tax deductible, as far as I know. There's no financial gain. There's just spiritual enlightenment to be yours. Once again, thanks to my wonderful guest, Anonymous. And thank you all for tuning in. Can't do twin without you. So I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. We should get back to the news then. Until then, be well, be holy, and be happy.